Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. China's Belt and Road strategy is acknowledged as one of the most ambitious geopolitical initiatives of our age. Covering almost 70 countries by land and sea, it will affect every element of global society, from shipping to agricultural, digital economy to tourism, politics to culture. Most importantly, it symbolizes a new phase in China's ambitions as a superpower, the topic of today's conversation. With me today is Bruno Massage, a senior advisor at Flint Global and a senior fellow at Renham University in China. He's the author of Belt and Road, A Chinese World Order, and his new book is The Dawn of Eurasia, On the Trail of the New World Order. Here's Bruno Massage. It's a political and economic initiative. That's the first thing. It's not just about economics. Uh, it's an ambitious, long-term initiative meant to be concluded around the middle of the century, mm. so a 30-year plan. And it's an initiative that, of course, and I think that goes without saying, has the purpose of placing China at the center, moving the center of the world economy and world politics from the West, from the United States to China. When you say it's a 30-year plan, a lot of countries embark on 30-year plans. They have that sort of long-term pie-in-the-sky kind of ambition. But for China, I see them as a country that would actually follow through with the 30-year plan. Right. I don't think that's actually common in, in the West anymore. Uh, you sometimes have something that you'd call a vision, mm -hmm. but it's supposed to be developed by civil society and it's supposed perhaps to be more uh, reflective and... Uh, and theoretical than practical, whereas the Belt and Road Initiative is simultaneously a long-term plan, but but something that is directed from the top and something that is being implemented month by month uh, with new projects, uh, with new uh, initiatives, uh, with new infrastructure uh, building all over the world, really. Mm. And when Xi Jinping talks about it, he calls it the project of the century. And I get the impression that he's not just talking about for China. He sees it as something that's going to change the world. Yes, I mean, clearly, Belt and Road encompasses pretty much everything. And the way you you might try to draw a distinction is to say the Belt and Road is everything that China is doing outside its borders. Mm. Then China has plans uh, that are domestic in nature. Made in China 2025 is, is a, an example of that. So yes, the Belt and Road is by definition about uh, how the world is going to change as a result of China's actions and not so much about how China is going to change in that respect, uh, in the sense that it is an international plan. Mm. And do you see it as applying a lot of things that were already uh, in effect to a framework or is there a lot of independent development going on? Both. Things that are already being developed have been now included and, and moved to the Belt and Road project, mm. um, but there are also new ideas and new projects being developed all the time. I don't see that as a flaw or as a problem. It became a sort of organizing umbrella, uh, and in that sense, uh, helpful and useful for China, I think, because it, it gives some coherence to what is by now really a very heavy footprint that China has outside its borders. Mm. And are they approaching how they apply the Belt and Road to other countries to how they apply it to a domestic audience? What's the difference in approaches there? Between domestic projects and uh, international yeah. projects? Yeah. No, they have a lot in common. Belt and Road is presented as trying to export China's model of development abroad. And that you hear all the time, the mm. idea that it worked for China, and so why shouldn't it work for Pakistan or for Kazakhstan? 
It's an attempt to uh, lead uh, some of these countries along the same path that, that China has been moving on for, uh, well, since 1978, really. And what's the pitch that they're giving other countries then when they go to them and say, this Belt and Road will benefit you? Are they saying, we're going to give you money, we're going to do development? What what exactly is the pitch that they're going to countries with? Yes, I mean, there's a number of pitches. There's the idea that uh, there will be money available, mostly loans and credit, not so much uh, grants mm. so far. There's the idea that there will be uh, the opportunity to learn from the Chinese experience. There's the idea that there will be the opportunity to integrate further with the Chinese economy. And finally, there's the idea that the Belt and Road will also contribute to international cooperation, conflict resolution, and ultimately world peace. Chinese authorities are not shy about using those big slogans. That seems to be a very broad remit, though. I suppose that's more about the idea of getting the Chinese culture and the Chinese uh, way of life out as well, isn't it? Right. In my book, I say that if you want an equivalent in the West to what the Belt and Road is, which I think is an interesting question to ask, because uh, in order to understand it would be useful to have an equivalent that Mm. we're familiar with, right? And some people say, well, the equivalent is the Marshall Plan. I don't think so. I think it's broader than that. Sorry, Um, uh, Marshall Plan. for Yes, I I understand that uh, this is a bit of a a transatlantic uh, symbol. After World War II, uh, the United States contributed with finance and expertise and political support for the reconstruction of Europe. Okay. And a lot of money was lent at, at cheap interest rates and in some cases even uh, grants not to be returned to uh, countries like uh, France, the United Kingdom, and even Germany, which is what I think made it remarkable that also Germany was going to be rebuilt And, of course, it had the political side that all these countries were supposed to become part of of an American-led global order. And so, in some respects, China is doing something that could be compared to that. But I think it's even broader than than the Marshall Plan, which was executed over a period of years. Um, We're talking really about the whole process of establishing a new global and political order. So I would compare the Belt and Road to the idea of the West, uh, not a specific project like uh, the Marshall Plan, but actually the decades-long development of a new political order. Mm. There's a lot of money being invested into this as well, but Chinese companies are also getting a lot out of it as well, aren't they? So the idea is if, if China goes to a country and says, we're going to build you a big bridge, mm-hmm. you use Chinese money, you also use Chinese companies. Is there a directive to do that or is it more of a general guideline encouragement kind of it's, it's never a very open uh, and transparent directive because it would not be well received in many places it's a bit more opaque than that not that different by the way from what uh, the united states government and american companies have done sure because clearly political support goes with investment and and with economic links and yes it's true and it's something that for example the european union has been complaining about that some of these massive infrastructure projects uh, have been reserved for Chinese companies Mm. and European companies have little access to it. One of the things that the European Union has been calling for is more transparency, rules of public procurement that create a uh, level playing field between Chinese companies and other companies. But, you know, my answer to that is usually good luck. Uh, You're not going to get that. When a country starts accepting loans from China for these sort of things, I've heard them referred to as debt traps. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what your thought is on that sort of term and if 
there perhaps giving find, loans that they shouldn't. I find that a bit puzzling. You know, I would have other criticisms of the initiative that I think are, are more relevant than that one. That one has become quite popular in mm. the West, but I think uh, that shows a little bit of our, so far, our inability to think about the Belton Road. Why do I think it's not a very good criticism? Well, it just doesn't seem to me that it's a very efficient method of extending your power to just uh, give people loans that they can't pay back. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can get the collateral, but many times the collateral is not as worth as much as, as the original loan. I think uh, there are better ways to do that than through what has been called debt trap diplomacy. Usually, I think what is happening is that China doesn't have developed standards of credit lending. A story that we've seen in the West as well, after Second World War, a lot of money was loaned to countries in Africa for projects that were not really efficient economically, and then those loans had to be uh, forgiven. And I think something similar is happening now with China. There are words every week about uh, loans that had to be forgiven to African countries, for example. Mm. In some cases, China will demand the collateral. In other cases, China will, will lose money. So it's a mixed bag. You have to see case by case. Uh, but I don't think there's a concerted strategy of um, uh, entrapping these countries through uh, cheap loans. Mm. But case by case, um, can you tell me about the port in Sri Lanka, for example, right. which they now have a contract for for 100 years? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, lots of people have been disturbed and shocked by this. There's also a, a certain historical uh, rhyme in the sense that uh, China there has complained so much about the case of Hong Kong. Mm, um, mm. The unfair treaty that granted Hong Kong to the uh, British uh, for 99 years at first and then in perpetuity. And something similar happened in, in Sri Lanka. But look, that port uh, is not going to make money for 50 years. That's what people tell me. And in that sense, China, even though it got the lease for 99 years, is still going to lose a lot of money because I think the original investment was of about a, a billion dollars. Perhaps they'll transform it into a naval military base. It's a way to recover some of the investment. But let's not think that China does everything right and that there's a a methodical, a flawless uh, process of decision-making because that's not um, my impression of what is happening. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of uh, lack of coordination. There's uh, people that want to show uh, initiative and move too fast and make decisions that have not been thought through. It's a messy process, just as the rise of the United States in the 19th century, early 20th century was a very messy process. In that sense, again, as I said before, one can make interesting comparisons to previous history. So is there a military aspect to the Belt and Road then? I don't hear about that being explored very often, but an obvious angle, I suppose, is if you've got a port in Sri Lanka for 100 years, you've got carte blanche over, that'd be a good place to maybe park a few ships. Who's going to stop you? Yeah. No, there's, there's definitely a military angle to the Belt and Road, even though China would deny it. There's an interesting question, although in the end, I'm not sure how, how important, of trying to determine whether the military angle is there from the start in a very deliberate way or whether it happens a bit uh, by chance and China is, is dragged into it. Mm. Um, because one could argue that uh, perhaps China didn't want to have a very strong military angle to the project. China does understand power as being based on economic relations. But in the end, you know, if you have uh, significant investments abroad, uh, if your citizens are in greater and greater numbers living abroad and working abroad, then sooner or later there's going to be a security angle where you have to protect these investments and you have to protect these people. And you have to protect the trade routes and the energy routes. 
And it's very obvious that China is thinking about opening uh, military bases along the Belt and Road with the purpose of protecting these investments and protecting its own citizens. Then the question of whether this was there from the start or became necessary as the process was advanced, it's perhaps in the end not that relevant because what matters is the end result. And the end result is that China will have a uh, military footprint abroad. Mm. China has won. There's been now news of a second small base that's been opened very recently in Tajikistan. Mm. Rumors about a third base in Cambodia. So it's happening, but uh, for the time being, yes, it does not compare to the network of uh, U.S. uh, military bases. So what do you think the West reaction should be to the Belt and Road Initiative? Because it sounds like there's a lot of benefit out of it. There's a lot of nations that can get development projects, stronger links to China means more trade, and they're potentially getting loans that they wouldn't from other countries. So why the cautiousness? One thing that seems obvious uh, by now is that the West is not going to have a unified position on the Belt and Road. Uh, Mm. It's very divided on the Belt and Road. You might think that, that that is a problem or you might think that was to be expected, but the United States has decided to develop alternatives I hesitate about using the word, but in some sense, trying to contain or even undermine the Belt and Road. Uh, I think we've seen signs of that. Mm. Japan has a very ambiguous position of being simultaneously inside the Belt and Road and outside looking for alternatives. India hasn't made up its mind. The European Union seems to want to participate, but under the condition of having managing powers and managing rights in the initiative and other countries like Italy and Portugal have actually joined the initiative. So you have uh, the broadest possible spectrum of positions on the Belt and Road from even from inside NATO. And of course, Australia, where I'm also told there's this uh, slightly odd situation of one of your uh, state governments. It's this one. This one here where we're talking, exactly. We uh, signed on. Having signed on (laughs) to the Belt and Road in a, a sort of direct relationship between a state government and the Chinese national government, not a province. So uh, (laughs) probably the best example of how there's really a lot of uh, possibilities how to deal with the Belt and Road. Mm. It kind of indicates to me that China isn't picky who decides to sign on. No, not at all. Uh, And And why would they be? They present that as as a difference and as being a a virtue of the Belt and Road, that it's open to everyone. Mm. They criticize the West for being a selective club of friends keeping some people out. Um, but of course, you know, the reverse of that is that China doesn't really defend any uh, normative order mm. uh, and is much more tolerant, for example, of uh, all kinds of uh, abuses by African dictators and others. And I caught something in your tone when you said that Portugal signed on and that being your home territory country. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- what are your thoughts on that in particular? Well, uh, we're interested in in having alternatives, not being too dependent on the European Union. By the way, the crisis we had a few years ago, I think uh, people here are familiar with that Mm. uh, during the Euro crisis, uh, was in in large measure because uh, we had become too dependent on the European markets. But I wasn't happy at the lack of transparency. I think I was the only Portuguese, and I, I live in Beijing, alerting people that this was very close to happening and that we should have a discussion in Portugal. But it didn't happen. There was no discussion whatsoever. Mm. Uh, It was just announced and uh, people didn't even care. And now they're starting to care, but they're starting to care a little bit under American pressure, which is not the best way to 
to discuss the issue. So overall, a very disappointing process in Portugal. Yeah. What do you see as something that countries that engage with the Belt and Road Initiative should be aware of then? If they sign on, even if it's a purely symbolic uh, memorandum of understanding, it will be interpreted by China as uh, uh, including a certain number of commitments, not uh, legally valid, but politically valid. Later on, if they want to disengage, I think China will probably be upset by that and might have some measures of retaliation. Mm. Um, One has to think about this uh, carefully. And it will also upset the existing economic and political relationships uh, with the United States and in the case of some European countries with Brussels. So it is a serious matter, even if sometimes it may seem entirely uh, symbolic. How important is the Belt and Road Initiative to Xi Jinping? I see that a lot of the success of it is tied up with his success. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd like to know about the viability of the plan. It's his initiative. It was announced by him in 2013, soon after he became general secretary of the party. And of course, he's um, gambled his uh, political success, his, his, his political destiny, his political legacy, his place in Chinese history on the success of this initiative. And that's why in China, lots of people will in private criticize the initiative. Mm. That surprised me a little bit when I lived there. And it's easy over dinner to to have a Chinese academic, uh, sometimes even an official, uh, criticize the initiative, but no one will do it in public. It's been included in the Chinese Communist Party's constitution. And the result of that is that there will be no backtracking. There will be no significant changes. And certainly the initiative is not going to be abandoned. It is uh, affirmed from the top and is now intimately linked to the prestige and and, and to the fate of of Xi Jinping. I've got two more questions, but one of them is um, the European Union's connectivity strategy. Mm. What are your thoughts in that in relation to the Belt and Road Initiative? Do you think it's embracing it enough? Do you think it's competing with it? I mean, it was obviously a response to it. It's called Eurasian Connectivity Strategy, but uh, uh, it was announced a few months ago, and I think no one even noticed, to be honest. Uh, The European Union needs to change in the sense of having a more concerted, directed, politically significant um, view of the world. So far, it's all very technocratic. This was drafted not by politicians, but by bureaucrats in Brussels. And when you try to squeeze out the content, uh, it's almost nothing. It reads a lot more like a think tank paper Mm. than a political initiative. There's no money assigned to it. There's no real political strategy. And there's even the, I think, uh, relatively puerile fact that uh, uh, even though that document and, and, and that strategy is aimed at China, the name China never appears. Really? Yes. That seems a bit... Protective. <laughs> yeah, it seems it shows that it was drafted by bureaucrats who <laughs> would never even think, uh, let alone enjoy any hint of um, competition or confrontation. Mm. Mm. So, what's next for the Belt and Road Initiative then? What are you watching as something you're expecting? How do you think it's going to go long term? There's always uh, something happening. For people like me, they have become buffs of the initiative. I want to keep uh, a close eye on it, probably for the rest of my life, huh? Yeah. Signed up for a few books or something <laughs> like that. Well, there's going to be the big summit in April, and I think it will be an important one. We're all curious about what Vladimir Putin is going to say. We're all curious about what Mahathir from Malaysia is going to say. I think Mahathir is a, a kind of a household name here in Australia. Mm. 
Uh, it's be critical of some projects, but if he gives a strong support to the initiative, I think it will be significant. And uh, well, also following this, this story about new uh, military bases, also following the story in Europe, uh, Italy just joined uh, or announced that it will join. It's now under pressure from the United States to go back on its announcement. Mm. I think it is inevitable that we're going to have a global China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I think it should also be inevitable that other countries try to uh, shape it in certain directions. And, and so we have the Belt and Road and we would always have it and forget about trying to get rid of it. And so I think that's a lost cause, uh, but it's still possible to shape it. And I would think, for example, on the question of transparency, uh, we should urgently be working on that uh, because it really goes against uh, values in the West. That's Bruno Masayash, author of Belt and Road, A Chinese World Order, and his new book is The Dawn of Eurasia, On the Trail of the New World Order. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts and a pleasant plethora of other podcasting platforms. You can follow Bruno Masayash on Twitter. He is at Masayash Bruno, and Masayash is spelled M-A-C-A-E-S. And you can follow Latrobe Asia. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith. And thanks for listening.